Boys and girls, would you like to come and join me at the front? Don't be intimidated by what I'm wearing. You'll see a reason for that a little bit later. <laughs> so I've got a question for you this morning. Just another question. Have any of you ever felt like you were being ignored, you weren't getting enough attention? Have you ever felt like you were being ignored? Hands up. Yeah? If you were being ignored, what would you normally do to try and get some attention? Hey. You would shout out, yeah? Anything else you might do? What to say? Do something naughty. Do something naughty. Mm. <laughs> okay, I'm sure that will get attention. Might get the right sort of attention, but we'll get some attention. And um, what else would you like to do? Can you think of an example? Who, who might be ignoring you and how would you get their attention? Yes. My sister. <laughs> what would you need to get her attention? Lawyer. <laughs> if you're doing the same thing all the time, do you think you would get people's attention? So if you try to do something different, do you think that would get people's attention? Whether it's something naughty or shouting or something else. Yeah? So the question is, if you think God felt like he was being ignored, if God felt like he was being ignored, what would he do to get some attention? Well, he wouldn't do something naughty, obviously. What, what might God do? Any ideas? Yeah, he could do something like that, something dramatic. Sometimes, when God does something different to get our attention, we call it a miracle. A miracle, or signs and wonders that were sometimes used in the Bible. We're going to illustrate this with a little bit of chemistry. So who wants to have a go? Do I have any volunteers to do a little experiment? Yeah? Okay? Okay, so I have here some salts. This is table salt. And this is baking soda. Salt. What we're going to do is just mix them together in some cups and see what happens. Now, any of these, what do you think is going to happen? What do you think is going to happen? Do you think it might make a different colour? Okay. What do you think? We might overfill them. We won't fill them too much. But if something would like to come up and mix them in that cup, would you like to go first? Uh, it's already mixed up in here because it takes a little bit of time to dissolve, so you don't need to use those. If you want to, you can, but uh, you can just pour it out of these bottles. Now, what's happening? Anything special happening? Give it a swirl around. Hmm, nothing's happening. It's too much actually for it to dissolve fully. Somebody else has to have a go. I'll just put that down and somebody else has to go. So I'll just take some of this one, that's the baking soda, and this one's just the table salt. Mix some of them together in a cup and see what happens. Sometimes attributed to Albert Einstein, sometimes attributed to Benjamin Franklin. 
which defines insanity as doing the same thing over and over again and expecting different results. <laughs>
but the dead young man is lying on. But what's he doing? He's touching the dead body. That doesn't he realise that's going to make him ceremonially unclean, literally unclean? But then what do you see happening? You see, the young man has suddenly, the dead young man, he was dead, now said he's got a fright. Can you imagine what might be going through his head at this time? So who do you look at first? You look at the, the young man who's suddenly been resurrected, possibly thinking, what am I doing here? Why is everyone looking at me? Now your gaze now turns to the widow who formerly had lost her son. Now she's probably ecstatic with joy to see him alive and well. Do you turn to look at Jesus, the figure responsible for this? Things like this definitely do not happen every day. The resurrection of the dead man is something that we would all probably recognise as a miracle. Even David Hume, the Edinburgh-based Scottish philosopher of the so-called Enlightenment period, David Hume described in his inquiry concerning human understanding in the chapter titled Of Miracles, he said it would be a miracle if a dead man was raised to life. If we look at resurrection miracles, even within the Bible, they're not very commonplace. We've heard a couple of them this morning. There's about three in the Old Testament that I'm aware of it too. We've heard about Elijah raising the widow of Zarephath's son. There's a very similar account of his successor Elisha raising the Shunammite woodwoman's son when he died as well. Then there's another one associated with Elisha. Ironically, after he's dead, his bones seem to resurrect somebody else to life after they fall into his tomb accidentally. So there's three in the Old Testament. In the New Testament, obviously Jesus' resurrection stands out. But that's a very, very special case. Jesus' resurrection body is very different. He's raised to immortality, never to die again. His body also has some unusual properties. He seems to be able to pass through locked doors. Arguably, he's able to control his appearance somewhat so that people don't necessarily recognize him immediately. So Jesus' resurrection body and his resurrection are quite unique. But aside from Jesus' resurrection, there are about six other resurrection miracles just like the New Testament that I'm aware of. So four associated with Jesus. We've heard about him raising the widow of Nain's son. There's also Jairus' daughter. There's also obviously the raising of Lazarus, and a curious account at the end of Matthew's Gospel, which only Matthew records, where on Good Friday, at the moment of Jesus' crucifixion, a number of dead people, a number of saints, are raised to life and go into the holy city as Matthew describes in Jerusalem. Then in Acts, we have two resurrection miracles described. We have Peter raising Dorcas and Paul raising Eutychus. These are not commonplace events, even within the Bible. Thinking more generally, miracles are not actually terribly easy to define. If we take, for the sake of argument, the definition that David Hume gives, and there are good reasons to take issue with this, as I will demonstrate later, he defines, a miracle is a violation of the laws of nature. <laughs> so if we take that definition, Throughout most of the Bible, we have long gaps where there don't seem to be any miracles. 
Most of them seem to be associated with Moses and his successor Joshua, with Elijah and his successor Elijah, and then with Jesus and the early accounts of the apostles. If you are to look through most of the books of the Old Testament, you won't find many violations of the laws of nature. If you go through most of the prophets, Isaiah, yes, there is a miracle associated with King Hezekiah. Jeremiah, none. Ezekiel, leaving aside the visions that these people receive, there's no violations of the laws of nature. Daniel, yes, there's a number in the book of Daniel. Jonah, yes, we can certainly say, but Hosea, Joel, Amos, Obadiah, Micah, Nathan, Habakkuk, Zephaniah, Haggai, Zechariah, Malachi, um, likewise um, Ezra and Nehemiah, no violations of the laws of nature. So even within Scripture, these, as far as I understand, seem to be relatively rare events. Go back to Hume's definition. Hume describes, in, in fuller context, a miracle is a violation of the laws of nature. And as a permanent ultimate experience has established these laws that proves the miracle. But the very nature of the fact is as intact as any argument from experience could possibly be imagined. <laughs> Let's dissect that a little bit more closely. He describes it as a firm and unalterable experience. But even to have that view assumes a certain constancy, a certain uniformity in the laws of nature. Why, why do we have laws of nature to begin with? And what are they? Well, really, laws of nature are not prescriptive. They're descriptive and sometimes predictive. In other words, they describe what we normally see happening in the natural world. They are not dictates like the laws of the land describing what should happen, so much as descriptions of what normally happens and descriptions of what probabilistically speaking, we would expect would normally occur. They're not, therefore, but something that God cannot violate, as you would understand it. Laws of nature, I think, are better understood as Charles Kingsley put it. Charles Kingsley, who some people might know as the author of the Water Babies, he described them as the customs of God, how God would normally operate. And for somebody who might be an atheist, the laws of nature actually pose a little bit of a problem. The uniformity of nature can pose a problem. Where does this actually come from? So in order to demonstrate uniformity in nature, we need to assume something that we are setting out to prove. Most experimental science operates by something we call induction. We go from the specific to the general. You might perform an experiment, like a demonstration with young people, mixing a couple of salts together, in this case it's mixing lead nitrate with potassium uh, bromide to get the white precipitation, and then potassium iodide to get the yellow precipitation. These are things that you can perform repeatedly, reproducibly, and then generalize based on repeated observations that this is what normally occurs and what you might expect to happen. You're going from the specific individual experiments to general conclusions that we've described as laws. But you're assuming uniformity in the natural world in order to establish it all. The whole method of induction requires an assumption of conformity in nature. It's not something that's logically necessary. It's, not, it's a statement about the world as we actually experience it. It's not a conceptual idea. It is a statement about the actual world. And therefore, because it relies on induction, and induction itself 
realize an assumption of uniformity in the natural world. Where they come from is a little bit tricky, unless we have an understanding of God as not just the creator, but also the sustainer of the universe, which we find repeatedly in the Bible. As in Colossians chapter 1 verse 17, it says that he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. Hebrews chapter 1 verse 3, describing Jesus, the Son is the radiance of God's glory, and the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful word. And also in Nehemiah. Nehemiah has a beautiful prayer in chapter 9, where he describes in verse 6, You alone are the Lord. You created the heavens, the highest heavens, and all their starry hosts. And then, you give life to all things. You are continually sustaining. So if we understand God in these terms as sustaining, then it's easy to understand where the laws of nature come from. Hume, on the other hand, seems to be assuming that they are something very, very different, something that cannot be broken, and he's assuming this on the basis of experience. But of course, unless you have universal experience, you can't say that a particular law of nature could never be broken, or you've never seen an exception of God doing it acting in a different way. The only way you could have universal experience would be if you have universal knowledge and therefore if you were a God. So, you know, it poses a bit of a problem. On the other hand, if we go back to chapter 7 of Luke's Gospel, which you heard read earlier, we have a description of a miracle here. This is usually referred to in the Bible as a sign, signs and wonders. You'll see on the front of the order of service a number of different words which might be slightly unfamiliar. Otot umupetu. These are the words for signs and wonders as they appear often in the Old Testament. For example, in Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 22. Oath, a sign, mopeth, a wonder, otot umupetu in the plural. Likewise, in the New Testament, there are a number of different words that are used to describe miracles in the New Testament. Sometimes John will use the word ergo, meaning work, sometimes dynamite, and that dynamic accent, you get the word dynamite. But quite often it will be samaya kaitarat, a samayan, a sign, teras, a wonder. Signs and wonders. Now these indicate that they're not merely capricious things to show. They have a purpose. If it's to be a sign, there is definitely a purpose to God acting in a special way. Look at the story that we have in Luke chapter 7. What is the purpose of this miracle, of this sign, of this wonder? There's clearly an echo of the story that we heard read from 1 Kings, the story of Elijah raising the widow's Arkansas. There's clearly an echo of that. We have a widow in both instances, a dead son that's raised to life. But what motivates this particular miracle? Now, there are a number of instances in the Bible where Jesus doesn't perform a miracle does perform a sign of request. If we go to Matthew chapter 12, Jesus is requested to perform a miracle. He's requested to perform a sign and he refuses. He says, a wicked and adulterous generation that looks for a sign. Verse 38 of Matthew chapter 12. Why does he say this? Go back to verse 24. He's already been casting out demons. And the Pharisees don't recognize Jesus is true source of power. Even though they can see he's casting out demons, they say, by the visible, the prince of demons, he's casting out demons. They're scared, they don't recognize him. Go to the end of Matthew chapter 13, and we find that there's a number of people who are, because of their lack of faith, because of their atheistic, Jesus refuses to perform a sign. 
In Luke chapter 7, we have two accounts. The preceding story, which we haven't read this morning, is Jesus healing a centurion and a servant. He heals the centurion's servant because of his remarkable faith, the faith that he describes as nothing like what he observed in Israel. So faith is clearly motivated, but in this story, whose faith is responsible for Jesus performing this resurrection miracle? The son, the deceased son, not here, he's not, I mean, he's dead. He's not responsible. His mother, she's stricken by grief. It's simply a case that Jesus is moved by compassion. Now, what about the response of the crowd? Now, the crowd hail him as a prophet, clearly recognizing the echoes with Elijah. But that they stop short. They say God has visited his people, but only as a prophet. Luke, however, notices more. It's significant that in Luke chapter 7, verse 13, Luke uses the word Lord, the Greek kyrios, to describe Jesus. Now Luke hasn't used this word to describe Jesus himself before the gospel. He describes God as kyrios in Luke chapter 1. He cites the angels describing Jesus as the Lord in Luke chapter 2. It's the first time he himself, without citing something else, describes Jesus himself as Lord. What's the significance of kyrios? Kyrios in the Greek is the equivalent of the Hebrew word Adonai. Adonai, meaning Lord, is used whenever a Jew will be reading the Old Testament and they encounter God's name, which they won't pronounce, Hashem, the name. Spelt with four Hebrew letters, yod hey vav which we transliterate into English as Y-H-W-H. Instead of reading that out, they say Adonai, Lord. So by using the word Kyrios here to describe Jesus, Luke is recognizing Jesus as effectively as God, and he's saying the Lord at this point. Jesus is clearly recognized as Lord. It's interesting also that in contrast to the resurrection miracle performed by Elijah in an upper room on his own with the young man and the boy, Jesus has a crowd following him. There's a large number of people who witness this. So clearly there's a purpose which Luke ultimately gets, Jesus' followers ultimately get. This signifies that he is Lord and there are a lot of people who witness it. Laws of nature. Not every way that God acts is necessarily by performing strange exceptions to the rule that mixing colour of salts, for example, doesn't produce a coloured liquid. Any special cases do, as I've demonstrated with children. Sometimes God acts in special ways, but not most of the time. Let's turn back to the psalm that we signed at the beginning of the service, Psalm 146. This also describes the constancy of God's action. If you look at verse 6, God is the Lord who made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in it, who keeps faith forever, as some translations would put it, who keeps truth forever. And the Hebrew word for truth. God is faithful, as in upholding the natural order of things, as in upholding the laws of the universe that we would understand and describe by science. What about violations of the laws of nature? Well, we don't see that many of them in this psalm. It describes God's activity. The only example that might possibly be a violation of the laws of nature would be verse 8, the Lord opens the eyes of the blind. 
But most of the descriptions given there don't seem to be violations of the laws of nature. David Livingston, a, a number of weeks back during the summer months, quoted John Donne's book, John Donne, who was a poet and African cleric, took a quotation that he cited from a 1627 sermon that on Easter Sunday that John Donne had given in uh, St. Paul's Cathedral, particularly resonated with me in this regard, with regard to God's actions in the miraculous and in the ordinary. He said, there is nothing that God has established in the constant course of nature, but would seem a miracle if it were performed but once. Nay, the ordinary things in nature would seem greater miracles than the extraordinary, which we admire most if they were done but once. Only the daily doing takes off the admiration. Sometimes familiarity can breed contempt. Sometimes when we do lots of things repeatedly and don't see anything different happening, we might wrongly assume that God isn't active. We might wrongly assume that. And then when God does something different, we might suddenly think, oh, God is intervening. I think that's a mistaken way of viewing God's action. Not just because it misses out that God is sustaining the natural world, but also because it falls into a fallacy that we often refer to as God of the gaps. You might seem a little more service, a little cartoon that I included, by the cartoonist Sidney Harris. And using the cartoons, you know, other great screens on blackboard, and in the middle of which is then a miracle occurs, and the, the, the caption reads, I think you should be more explicit here in step two. The term of the gaps was actually coined by a Christian, who was a scientist, the founding professor of theoretical chemistry in Oxford, brilliant man who was a physicist, chemist, and mathematician, Charles Coulson. Charles Coulson was also a Methodist leader. And Charles Coulson wisely wrote, wisely said, when we come to the scientifically unknown, our correct policy is not to rejoice because we have found God, it is to become better scientists. So for scientific reasons, to think of God intervening, only suddenly acting is mistaken. But also, for theological reasons, even before Charles Coulson, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, writing from his imprisonment by the Nazis shortly before his death, writing in correspondence, he said, how wrong it is to use God as a stopgap with the incompleteness of our knowledge. And he continues, we are to find God in what we know and not in what we don't know. So even within the constancy of the natural world, something that is hard to explain without a belief in one God, as opposed to a polytheistic model of warring gods or an atheistic model of no God. It's hard to explain the constancy of nature, as far as I can see it, without a belief in one God. Let's look again at the psalm. There are various different descriptions given here of God's activity. Not just opening the eyes of the blind, not just creation. He sets the prisoners free, verse 7. He executes justice for the oppressed, who gives food to the hungry, the Lord sets the prisoners free. Whether God does this directly or indirectly isn't described here. Look at verse 9. The Lord watches over the sojourners. Some translations would have that as the alien. Refugees. How do we treat refugees today? Are we reflecting God's concern? He upholds the widow and the fatherless. 
We've seen God's concern for widows reflected in both the Old Testament and the New Testament reading that we heard this morning. The Lord loves the righteous, verse 8. There are lots of descriptions here of God's activity, which may be indirect, maybe through his followers, maybe through us. I'm reminded here of words by the Carmelite reformer of St. Teresa of Avila, referring to our risen and ascended Lord, who is sitting at the right hand of the Father interceding for us. She said, Christ has no body now on earth but yours. No hands but yours, no feet but yours. Yours are the eyes by which Christ's compassion is to look out to the world. Yours are the feet by which he is to go about doing good. And yours are the hands by which he is to bless us now. So, signs and wonders. Words that we find repeatedly in the Bible to describe God's actions in the miraculous, the unusual. But how are we signs and wonders to other people in our lives? How are we a sign to other people in God's activity that makes them wonder why are they behaving that way? Why are they concerned about it? Let us pray. Loving Father, we thank you for your faithfulness that we can see in the regularity of the natural world, a regularity and a constancy and a uniformity that we're able to destroy by science. Thank you for your faithfulness. Thank you for the beauty of the world that you have created. The heavens, the highest heavens, the earth and all that is on it, the sea and all that is in it. Thank you, Lord, that you give life to all things, and that all creation looks to you for life. Forgive us when we sometimes look for the extraordinary and the spectacular. Forgive our unbelief. Help us overcome our unbelief. Forgive our weak faith, our small faith, increase our faith, Lord. Help us to trust in your continuing faithfulness. Help us also to be more open to your love, that we might be better signs to other people, better witnesses of your love. Signs that will make other people wonder and be attracted and drawn to you. We ask all this in Jesus' name, who taught us when we pray to say, Our Father, who art in heaven.